If you go to the uh, grocery store in Omaha or Albuquerque right now and you buy blueberries, they're coming from either Chile or Peru. And if you buy avocados, even though they grow them in New Mexico, they're actually coming from Mexico right now, and then it'll be our turn. And so you can kind of go through the, <laughs> the whole lineup and say, well, reality, if you're going to be taking advantage of the seasons, there is going to be a certain amount of movement. Global's not just uh, an evil thing. And so, you know, I don't know how you two struggle with this or if you do struggle with it, but balancing this idea, sure, go local as much as you can. But there's nothing wrong with some of these products that are coming from other countries if they are producing to similar standards as we expect. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, we have conversations, and today I'm happy to talk to a couple of ladies that um, do conversations about agriculture all the time. They do it in, a, in an excellent way. One's coming to us from New Mexico, one from Nebraska, Tara Vander Dusen and Natalie Kuvark, and they are co-hosts of a podcast themselves, Discover Agriculture, co-founders of the online uh, Elevate Agriculture. You know, it's great to have you both with me. You've, uh, I've had you as guests before in the case of, of Tara, and to have you both here and know you listen to my podcast too. Hey, welcome. Thanks for being on Farm to Table Talk. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. I'd like to have you be here too in California, but you need to bring a boat. We've been having <laughs> floods and uh, power's been off at, at my place a couple of times already. And there's people that have had their power off now for nearly two weeks as we record this. So I wanted to go where you guys have hung out lately. You were chasing farmers and conversations about farmers all the way to the Caribbean. You were in Puerto Rico. What's that all about? Yeah, we just got back from Puerto Rico just a couple of days ago, and we were there for the American Farm Bureau Convention, and we actually recorded our podcast, Discover Ag, live on stage from that convention. Um, and it was it was really incredible. It was incredible to learn about Puerto Rican agriculture and the um, territory and just hear all the things that are going on for farmers across the country. I went uh, to a conference once in Puerto Rico, and I really I loved it. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful I was going to say a state, but that's another issue. I wish it were a state. And uh, if I'd gone down there, I would disguise myself as a typical Farm Bureau member. And I've been Farm Bureau member for years. And I would like to have offered a motion from the floor that the American Farm Bureau go on record in support of Puerto Rico becoming a state, because I think it's it's time for the to do that. Do you think I would have been welcomed if I came that with that as my agenda? <laughs> You know, there was a lot of conversation down there around that and around, you know, what kind of support um, the agriculture industry in Puerto Rico needs. So it was it was really interesting to hear all of those conversations about becoming a state, not becoming a state and and really the challenges that their agriculture face. You know, and they are it's a state that's very tied to natural resources. Uh, I was noticing how many pharmaceutical companies have are based in Puerto Rico, and it seems to be kind of the jumping off place for uh, the sourcing so many products out of South America and and large pharmaceutical companies there. And, and I think that, uh, um, Natalie, you're nodding your head, which I'm able to see, but um, yeah, I was gonna say, I actually didn't know that, so I was just nodding along and, and learning something new. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's. Uh, it's it's great. It's and apparently uh, there's so many pharmaceuticals that go to the rainforest and find a lot of products that are that. And in fact, Natalie, I think you mentioned that you have a background as a pharmacist yourself. So um, yeah, yeah, and we do we do drive a lot of uh, plant plays a large role in um, you know where we got to in medicine. So yeah, yeah. Well, that's well, that's great. Well, I have. Um, well, let's talk about some more, though. When you end up having the American Farm Bureau go down there and uh, they have a large representation that came, I suppose, from every state in the union. 
Yeah, they said there was um, representation from almost every state. I don't believe every state was there, but I think they had just under 5,000 present. So I think um, they were pretty happy with the turnout. Um, and I know Tara and I were, um, we were pretty impressed. We had, you know, there's a lot of different, um, you know, breakouts to attend and a lot of good conversations to partake in. Yeah. So what surprised you? I mean, when you were trying to trying to get around 5,000 farmers, that are to set policies for the future and to talk about what's going on in agriculture. And you two were loose there in Puerto Rico and wandering around with all that's going on with the farmers at this com convention. Anything surprise you? Any of the conversations that you have were a little different than you saw coming? You know, when we were preparing for our podcast, we were kind of looking through like the history of American Farm Bureau and like just preparing for our episode. And I think what kind of surprised me is <laughs> a lot has changed and a lot hasn't. And, you know, American Farm Bureau, this is their 104th convention. And just a lot of the issues that we faced from the beginning are still issues we face now. Like, yes, we have modern uh, issues like globalization and, you know, different regulations that are coming up now and our farm bill that we're working on for 2023. But at the root, you know, some of the same things are affecting us. You talked about the rain California is getting. I mean, weather is something that will continue to affect us no matter what year of farming it is. I mean, it looks different every year and it looks different where you're at. But there's just, you know, some things at the the foundation of farming um, that kind of, I guess, stay consistent over the years. Yeah. You know, I have to brag a little bit on some of my family heritage because my great grandfather was on one of the original boards of the farm of the American Farm Bureau, actually at the and was on the state board of directors for the Illinois Farm Bureau just after it was becoming the Illinois Agricultural Association. So I'm I'm proud of that heritage. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's great. So it's, I mean, Farm Bureau has been playing a, a role, an important role for a long time. So I think it's really good that you, you went there and you were having conversations. And if people want to catch up those conversations that uh, I heard some of that already, but why don't we tell them right now where they can go hear your your trip to Puerto Rico and what was what was on the minds of the, of the farmers you talked to there? Yeah, our podcast is Discover Ag, and it's available um, anywhere you're listening to podcasts. So if they search that, and we also, if you're more interested in like um, that continued theme of you know Farm Bureau conversations, we actually um, interviewed President Duval too as an older episode. So if you the Puerto Rico one will depending on when you air this, um, the Puerto Rico one will be you know near the top. But if you scroll down a little bit, you'll see one with uh, President Duval on there as well. You say President Duvall. It's actually Zippy Duvall. Right? Yeah. Yes, Zippy. <laughs> I know. I never know which way to go. So I always lean on the more formal part. On that trip back from Puerto Rico, and you're heading back to New Mexico, and you're heading back to Nebraska, and you're flying over all this agriculture uh, as you come, come north, um, what's on your mind? You start thinking about conversations you either you wish you had or what you want to have or... Did you find yourself, I mean, just happy to get home or did you, did you have some time to think, you know what, this is something I'd want to look into more or these are conversations that I hope we have in 2023? Yeah. So something I was actually thinking about, it kind of goes to the title of our podcast is Discover Ag, like literally out there discovering ag. And actually, um, President Duvall mentioned something in his opening speech about how many farms he's been to and how every time he goes to a farm or a ranch, he learns something new still. And I was really reflecting on that thoughts. Like, I feel like you could go out and see farms every day, talk to farmers every single day, and there would still be something new to learn. Like Natalie and I are obviously both in livestock from dairy and cattle. But I think about all of the specialty crops and, and row crops and, you know, raising poultry and all the other forms of agriculture that I know so little about. Like we, you know, we think of ourselves as knowing a lot about agriculture because we're in ag and yet we know so little, like there's just so much to learn. Yeah. What do you think, Natalie? Uh, one thing I kind of really stuck with me from the conference is there was a lady there speaking and she had mentioned that, um, you know, Puerto Rico's food is 75% of it is imported. Um, and I re later read on the internet as high as 85%. Um, and 90% of that, you know, that range there is from the US. And so it really got me thinking, um, again, about the importance of U US agriculture on our podcast and also on our social platforms. Tara and I spend a lot of time, you know, advocating for food choice and food range, you know, like a range of options. 
Um, and I think, I mean, I guess I'd be interested to get your opinion, Roger, but I think there's a lot of conversation, you know, about sustainability and regenerative moving forward. And, you know, seeing that, you know, 90% of, or um, 75 to 80% of the food that Puerto Rico depends on, you know, is it is an importation. It just reminded me that we can't, I think there's a, a lot of nuance and conversations we need to be bringing to agriculture about, um, you know, a production standpoint and balancing that with the sustainability portion of it. Well, you know, technically, though, Natalie, um, 75% of the food you consume in Nebraska is imported, if you count state lines. Yeah, I just, um, I guess I just always am so thankful we're in, a, you know, the U.S., we're not reliant on, again, I guess we kind of are, like you said, we're in, importing, but we're just, a, we're a secure nation and um, and I'm, I'm just thankful of that. It makes me think about the places that do depend on other nations uh, for food. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that's a good point. I think one of the things I struggle with lately is I'm really, really sympathetic to local and I'm a big believer is trying to maximize support local as much as possible and so forth. But in reality, if you go to the uh, grocery store in uh, in Omaha or Albuquerque right now uh, and you buy blueberries, they're coming from either Chile or Peru. And if you buy avocados, even though they grow them in New Mexico, they're actually coming from Mexico right now, and then it'll be our turn. And so you can kind of go through the, <laughs> the whole lineup and, and say, well, reality uh, if you're going to be taking advantage of the seasons, there is going to be a certain amount of movement. And uh, global's not just uh, an evil thing. Uh, and and so, you know, I don't know how you, you two struggle with this or if you do struggle with it. But balancing this idea, sure, go local as much as you can. But there's nothing wrong with some of these products that are coming from other countries if they are producing to similar standards as as we expect. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the hard things is, you know, we talked with a blueberry farmer actually at American Farm Bureau, and they were talking about how the different seasons, like when, you know, Florida's blueberries are in season versus other countries further south or further north of them, like both directions and how that plays into it. And I think one of the things is if your final point is like, if things are held the same standard, one thing Natalie and I talk a lot about on the podcast is kind of this idea of local sustainability versus global sustainability. If we, you know, if you get set really high sustainability standards and you end up pricing farmers in certain areas out of the market because of sustainability regulations, you're really not doing anything but just moving those you know, emissions to another country or another area that may or may not have the same regulations as you. Um, and so that is something I, I believe that we do need the whole world, especially in this day and age where you walk into the grocery store and you expect to have avocados, even if it's December and yeah. you live in <laughs> Albuquerque or <laughs> Omaha. Um, we do need the whole world, but we need to be making sure that, you know, like those standards can just vary so widely from location to location. Well, and then the regulations, not all regulation is the same kind of regulation. I mean, I think that there certainly are some things that they need to monitor how much of a certain chemical or pesticides might be used or, you know, when they're withdrawn and so forth. And all of those things make sense. They're from a safety standpoint. Hopefully they don't go overboard, but from a safety standpoint, it gets a little trickier if you get into uh, labor issues, uh, if you get into environmental issues, because there are clearly countries uh, around the world that don't have standards as high as ours are or what our expectations. And there are places that are using, you know, child labor. Now I was child labor. You two probably were too. I mean, you know, we, we worked on the farm and, you know, driving tractors at 10, but you know what I mean? There's, uh, there's some that go over the line and, uh, and then there's some environmental things that go over the line. Uh, again, they can go both ways. So how, that's so tricky to balance, isn't it? And tricky to try to have fair conversations about those differences. Yeah, extremely. And I think that's one thing Tara and I try and do a lot, whether it's on our social platforms or the podcast is that just like, you know, we might not have the answers to these conversations, but the more we are aware of people to get them to think about, um, I feel like people want to put agriculture in a box, right? Like there's easy answers, just cut meat and it'll solve the problems or just do this. Like it's so black and white. 
And I think one thing we're really passionate about is just bringing that gray area to the surface, to have these conversations of all the different things we need to be thinking about and all the different things we need to be working on, because it's not, it's just not a simple industry. Now, when you have to invest a little time and effort and to take that into consideration and use common sense, not just kind of go to one extreme or the other. And and we're going to talk a little bit more about some some extremes. And we're going to get to cattle because both of you are involved in the cattle industry, one beef and and one dairy. But it's an example that um, it just seems to me that cattle production and consumption of cattle products have been unfairly picked on. And I think that um, I'm touching on a subject that both of you have opinions on. So uh, let's let's wade into that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, a large part of what Natalie and I talk about is kind of that um, that anti meat narrative that we so often hear in um, some of our news and media of you know cattle's impact on the environment, um, and it's you know it's it's just interesting to see where some of that misinformation comes from. Um, and, you know, just seeing kind of like the vegan movement and how people have kind of really like attached themselves to this idea that removing animal agriculture will like solve climate change. Um, and you know, the more and more I get into this and the more and more we research it, you know, it's, that's just not the full story. There's so much research, so much data, um, and just so much evidence, I think to see just, you know, ourselves on our farms and our ranches of what an important part ruminant animals play really in the ecosystem and our food system um, and beyond. Yeah. You know, I was listening to a podcast the other day that was with um, an interview with Seth Godin. And I like him a lot. I've read his books and, and, you know, it's like small is a new big and things like that, that if you're a small podcaster, you're going to love his story. And he says, pay attention to not trying to have like a million people you're talking to, but two or three, you know, and get narrow with your, your, your target on your message. And I listened to the whole thing and I was just thinking, man, I am going to forward this podcast to other people to listen to. And at the very end, they they said, okay, so what's your personal opinion about uh, climate change? And he said, cows are the problem. And I'm just like, smack my head. Oh, and, no. and I think, oh, my gosh, this is a really smart guy. I respect so much of what he's saying. And he just goes on and on about saying, there's no place for cows. Why do we have cows? You know, and I thought, I can't believe I'm hearing this. And no you know, and how do we get to somebody getting on a show like that that has a few more listeners than I do and uh, influential people? And they say, gee, Seth Godin is really smart. And if he says there's no reason for cows, um, there must be something to it. I, I'm, not, I'm sure I'm not the only one that has that experience. You, you two must hear it all the time. Yeah, no, it's it's scary. Like you said, we got to this point where, um, you know, whether we hold the person in high regard or don't even know the person at all, there's a plethora of them out there that, you know, believe this narrative that have fallen kind of um, to this propaganda. And Tara and I talk a lot about this, you know, just personally and, and obviously also on our, you know, platforms. But, you know, I feel like a lot of times I'm weighing the internal battle of are we making, you know, a mountain out of a molehill. You know, do we need to get out there and advocate for our industry to the extent we do? Do we need to be worried about, you know, the vegan narrative, the plant-based, um, you know, all of these things or, you know, is it just a really loud voice, right? Like what's the actual silent middle thinking or, you know, are we just getting too, you know, defensive as an industry? But then every, you know, I'll think that and then something like that will come along. It'll just hit me right in the head where it, whether it's like a friend who sent me a text that they were, you know, walking through a museum in Chicago and there was a huge thing on there about, you know, cows are the problem. You know, that's not what it said. But again, that narrative or like you said, you listen to a podcast that has, you know, millions of impressions on it and they end with that simple statement. And it does remind you that like. You know, I don't, I don't really know what the silent middle is thinking, um, but it's really important that, you know, that, that side of the spectrums, they're loud with their message. And, and so we kind of need to um, remember to be loud with ours too. You know, on the other hand, they didn't jump out there when we started identifying the problems with, with carbon and say, we just need to stop having cars. Yeah. We said that. <laughs> right. 
You know, it's a lot easier to, uh, you know, make the change of no steak on your plate than it is to, you know, bicycle to work every day or to give up your international flights or a lot of the other things. I mean, if you look at data from the EPA, you know, agriculture as an entirety, we account for 11% and animals all the way, you know, it's less than four. And if you look at what, you know, industry is or um, transportation, you know, they're up in the 20%, but, you know, no one wants to have that conversation or make those you know, if they truly care about climate change, it's really hard to make those, um, you know, bigger changes than it is to say, well, I'll just order a salad instead. Yeah. Well, and and I think the thing, the thing too, is what's more important than food? Sometimes I look at those figures and say, don't we think it should be twice as high? I mean, <laughs> in, instead of the stuff that we are doing, uh, we should be, you know, there should be a higher percentage for food and agriculture because what's more important than uh, than food production, um, but I don't think I'm winning any awards with that argument yet. But I just wrote that though. I had to type up something, and and that's like the new. I feel like the new thing I tack on is like, yes, our industry, as I said, is you know as a whole eleven percent. But think about what we're doing, like what that eleven sure. percent, the end of it. And I don't even think that's brought into the conversation, which is extremely you know kind of one frustrating, but two disheartening. Yeah, the well, food and fiber and clothing. I mean, just our everyday like essentials are coming from agriculture. Like, you know, yeah, we we want our number to be less and less and less, but we want to feed more and more and more people. Well, and and to take the car thing a little bit further, the one I've always looked at is that people understand that we're not going to do without cars. Some people may be persuaded it works for them to go, uh, you know, with uh, a Tesla rather than a Hummer. Although now they're making Hummers electric, and, <laughs> you know, and and in fact, that's where the top end on the on these new EV cars are. But people get that. People get that if they're concerned and say, fine, I'm going to cut back on my usage and I'm going to try an electric car. I'm going to try using a bicycle more often. You know, all these things, that's fine. So we wouldn't you say that we have variations of the same options with livestock? that some, probably some farming systems, some food systems do a better job than others in in, uh, reducing their carbon footprint. And do you talk about that? Should we talk about that? Yeah, I think that's an important question. Um, You know, I think that, I think that our food system is extremely complicated and integrated, as you well know. I think that sometimes in ag, we start focusing, or when we're talking about food, we focus like on a single food group or a single single thing, a single piece of it, whether that be animal-based or um, plant-based or like, you know, regenerative versus organic. And I think the more I get into it, the more I realize like there's a place for all of it. Um, There's going to be your people who want to choose organic. There's going to be your people who want to or need to choose conventional because of, you know, price limitations or different things um, within their budget. And so I think instead of looking at, you know, eliminating one or changing one or doing something like that, it's how do we continue to build this system to be stronger and better like together? Like I think about, you know, the integrations between like cotton and dairy farming that, you know, we produce cotton in our area and we feed cotton seed to cattle like that. These these like integrations are really where our strength lies. Yeah. Yeah, like in our case, this criticism of almond production, but we actually use almond holes are part of the dairy feed too out here. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, if we got into, you know, what some of the people wanted, which would be, you know, eliminating animals or cutting some of these, um, you know, like you just mentioned, almonds. Um, It's just hard to help, you know, make them see or understand how integrated the system is and what those rippling effects would be if we, you know, took out the grazing cow. Like that's going to have pretty serious implications on, you know, the environment. And so I just, I just, you know, they just don't see it the way we see it when we're immersed in it every day and understand it better. You know, I think that um, I want to go back to your flight home from Puerto Rico, because when you look out plane windows and go across the United States, at least. There is a lot of land that you couldn't possibly use for anything else. I mean, it has potential to be utilized by ruminants, but I, I 
don't know why that message can't sink in. People don't want to uh, stop and think about that when they get on a plane and maybe they're just glad if their plane goes anywhere these days, but they get <laughs> yeah. on a, get on a plane and they look out the window and you see forever and ever and ever and say, wait a minute, where are we going down there? Are we going to be growing, you know, oranges and strawberries and the cauliflower and broccoli and so forth? And well, in some gardens, they will. But aside from that, there's a lot of land. The best utilization is is grazing. And when you work with especially ruminants, now we'll talk about cattle. We shift into the, some other animals in a minute or two. But but with ruminants, uh, it's utilizing, uh, creating a, a, a really high-quality, nutrient-dense product that you couldn't unless you were making use of the grasslands and the grasses. Yeah, arable land versus non-arable land is like one of my favorite conversations to kind of bring uh, to my platforms. Because like you said, people just don't understand. They think that we can grow anything anywhere. Um, and two thirds of the, you know, the land, farmland is, is marginal. You know, we can't use it. My ranch is a perfect example of that. We're in, you know, central Nebraska. We're right on the border of the Sandhills. And if you know anything about the Sandhills, you know that cows are what, you know, cows have what have sustained it essentially they play a huge role in maintaining that ecosystem and and that's just from a land standpoint you know if you talk about like too hilly too rocky you know not fertile enough you also have to talk about climates i think like you know i can't we talked about avocados earlier like i i'm not going to be growing that in nebraska and so yeah there's a lot of nuance to you know the way we're using the land that people they want to just you know i think it stems from these documentaries that just say well you know whatever 70% or you know whatever number they throw out there is of the land in the world is used for animal agriculture it's like well yeah because that's all that it can be used for so we're actually very we should be very grateful that we have cows out there grazing and turning it into beef but again that's just a an easy you said that you know that uh Seth Seth uh I forget his last name but he said you know cows are the problem it's like they can put out one statement in five words that lasts forever. And we have to backtrack that we have to, you know, come on a podcast like this and talk about, you know, 20 minutes explaining multiple sentences in a paragraph to undo that catchy tagline that now is stuck with people. So I'm, I'm remembering when I was growing up, my dad would get uh, loads of cattle uh, to put in the feedlot in the winter and come from your country. Uh, and it would bring it back to Illinois, and we put them in a feedlot, give them some corn, and and I would clean the barns. We put the manure out on the fields, and it was a it was a beautiful system. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but most of those feedlots have gone out of business. Most of the farmer feeders, there's fewer and fewer of those left. That's a that's another another issue, I, I guess. But uh, one thing I wanted to go back to though, and that is uh, tar from a dairy standpoint. Uh, could you explain uh, these digesters? Because there's been a lot of talk about how there's progress made on some dairy. Certainly here in California, we've been bragging, bragging uh, about these these digesters. That um, could you explain what they are and what they what they do? Yeah, so there's some really fascinating technology going on on dairies right now uh, in relation to you know sustainability and reducing the carbon footprint. And digesters are just one of those. Um, and they are very popular in California right now. Um, they've been around for a while, but essentially what a digester does is we have these lagoons on dairies that collect the water where we clean the barns. So every time we milk the cows, we clean all the equipment and we obviously end up storing that water. And what a digester does, it will take that water, which is obviously mixed with manure and get the energy off of it, the gas off of it, and be able to power, you know, the, the dairy barn or homes in the area, communities around the dairy. Um, and so it's a really cool technology that is, you know, renewable natural gas of being able to convert, you know, something like manure into power. Um, it's really cool to see the amount of like, you know, there's a lot of those statistics that say like one digester takes, you know, is the same as taking so many cars off the road. I always think those are fascinating and some of the cool things about digesters too is it can also taste take waste from other streams besides just the dairy so sometimes you get these community kind of style digesters where they're able to process things from other processing plants um and and can you know convert it to even more energy beyond just what the dairy can provide yeah now yeah. uh, now let's explain a com couple things though like you were saying they have these lagoons like these are ponds 
Yes. And if you just left them out there or you sprayed it around and something, you're going to create methane, which is a bigger concern really than just normal carbon release because of the high concentration in the early years. It eventually dissolves faster, but when the atmosphere. But what that's capturing, though, is what is really cleaned out of these barns. So it would be like, um, so if a the cows still burp, so... Uh, so there is still is methane production, right? Correct. It's just getting Inherent rid methane. of one. It's getting rid of one source. And I think that might be a. It might be better if the industry were pointing that out because somebody's going to come back and say, "Oh, yeah, but what about this?" Well, fine, but it's making progress. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different sources on any farm, whether it be dairy or anything, where your sources of um, methane are being produced or your emissions. So for cattle, obviously, you have the emissions from them burping. All ruminant animals obviously burp, and that's a majority of methane. You also have the methane from their manure. And so, as you mentioned, on dairies, we collect all of that manure. And if you don't have a digester... Um, it does not go to waste there either. As you said, it ultimately goes back out onto the crops to water the crops and uh, uh, grow. You know, it's a fertilizer for crops. Um, but on a digester, it collects that methane. Then I said there's lots of different research going on on dairies and technology. We're also looking into ways that we can feed our cattle um, different input ingredients in order to reduce that methane from ultimately burping. So, like I think in the news a while back, it was like a tons of headlines about seaweed, you know, feeding cattle seaweed to yeah, reduce yeah. the methane emissions. Um, there's all sorts of research being done in that area of how to uh, better or to reduce the emissions from that. And what's actually interesting is it actually has to do with um, the feed efficiency is making the cattle consume the feed that they're consuming be more efficient. So they're not like wasting that gas. They're not burping out that gas. Uh, and so I think there's some exciting things happening in the rumin, ruminant animal space as far as sustainability goes that so every single piece of it, like you said, is one step in the right direction. Yeah. 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 No, it's it's exciting to see these progress taking place because I've seen a lot of stories lately about things that they might be able to feed the cattle that cut down on the burping a, a great deal. But the other factor, like you two to comment on this, is you know Frank Mitlerner at UC Davis uh, talks about this quite a bit, and he gets criticized from people that are on the other side of the the arguments because he he does. But he's the one that got me thinking about cattle being kind of like you know, Tesla, you know, versus a Hummer sort of thing, is that if you are uh, certain systems and, and cattle that are very productive, the ratio of what they're contributing into the atmosphere per gallon or pounds of meat produced from their offspring and so forth like that, that's a big difference. And that uh, a cow is not a cow. I don't know if that's fair, but you could pick countries. I don't want to pick on any country in particular right now where the if you looked at how much uh, methane might be coming from the cattle, com compare proportionate to what they're producing. And that ought to be the, the reference. But I'm, is that just too confusing to try to make that point to consumers, you think? So I think from the dairy perspective, we have been trying to kind of make that point. And the way we go about it is one of the numbers we use a lot is that in the last 75 years, we've reduced our carbon footprint by 66%. And a large portion of that is by improved genetics in our cattle and increased milk production. Because as you said, if a single cow is producing twice as much milk as you know its predecessor, it has less admissions per gallon of milk without changing any other factor just by having better genetics. Um, and so I do think we're trying to have that conversation. But as you said, it's a complicated conversation um, and it can be turned around. A lot of times I've heard that consumers then react and say, oh, so they're just, you know, machines. You're just trying to get as much milk or beef out of them as possible. It's about, you know, efficiency. And it's like, no, it's about improved genetics, improved nutrition. Uh, so I do think that there there's work being done, and I think there's work to do in that space. Yeah, I I wonder whether you could actually make this point back to the country of origin issues, too, because there are some countries that the cattle production is just much more efficient. And so they're producing a lot more uh, in meat and dairy products. And um, anyway, I wonder if that shouldn't be a point. 
Natalie, yeah, what, would, what would that be like? Can you well, imagine we actually that? talked about this a little bit when we covered the Netherlands and everything that's, go, you know, the farm crisis going on over there. You know, I think one of our, there's obviously a lot of main points to talk about, but one of them that, you know, Tara and I talked about was that like, it makes no sense to, cu- you know, cut um, production in sustainable um, and productive countries, because going back to what we talked about earlier, like we're just offsetting elsewhere. And so, yes, like we need to be, um, you know, always working toward improving, um, but we have to keep the leaders, you know, producing. And so I think, I don't know, maybe that kind of could be part of that conversation of helping them understand that. You know, it's a nightmare in one extent, because I can imagine getting to the point that you could be looking at a a carton of milk that could come anywhere from the world. And you could say, well, I can get I can drink this milk from New Mexico or Bangladesh. I don't want to just pick on them because but I don't think they're listening. So I'm going to say (laughs) Bangladesh. So and and you look at that and you say, I'm about to buy this milk, but the carbon footprint because of the inefficiencies of the industry is 10 times worse than if I get the milk from Tara's dairy in New Mexico. Uh, And if you really cared about it, that'd be kind of an interesting fact, wouldn't it? Yeah, that is. That's something I've actually touched on a little bit because North America has the lowest carbon footprint for a gallon of milk in the world. Um, And so it's something I, I do like to share about, but it is, it's, it's interesting and complicated because that makes sense for the United States, but then that number would change if we were importing, you know, or exporting our milk, you know, across the country by the time it gets or across the world, sorry, by the time it gets to someplace else, it's not going to still have the same carbon footprint. Um, and so it is, it, I'm curious of how soon we're going to start seeing products on the shelf that say carbon neutral, you know, like that that's going to be the new like non-GMO or whatever, um, or organic. It's going to be that carbon neutral label and, um, and how that plays out with our global world, because we're like, we started this conversation with talking about how we're importing and exporting and all of these things. Um, and so it's, I don't know. You know, I mean, I think it takes all of us, but then at the same time, you want to give credit where credit's due for the farmers that are doing, you know, a lot or doing the most to, to, to really curb emissions. The other thing that I think is needs to be considered with that is, um, and Tara and I'll talk about this on our podcast too, is like, I feel like that falls into like carbon tunnel vision, right? Like everyone loves to talk just about carbon emissions. Like that's the sole thing we should be caring about. And it's like, there's so much more to care about you know, in comparison to to weighing one product beyond just the carbon footprint. Um, we talked about this specifically when uh, Google was like thinking of rolling out that you do the recipes and it ranks the food in there with the carbon emissions and, you know, beef was at the top. And it's like, well, that's just, again, focusing on carbon. How about we weigh into account like the nutrition standpoint of beef? How about we weigh into account like what a grazing animal does for the ecosystem? And so I do think there's danger, like Tara said, it it is on one hand, nice to, you know, recognize low carbon footprints. On the other hand, it's like, there's a lot of other things that aren't as easy to measure and aren't as easy to slap across the label that need to be in consideration. And a big one in my mind is obviously nutrition because, you know, animal proteins are one of the most nutritious things we can feed and they might come with a little bit higher footprint than, you know, one of the the alternatives, but they're certainly not as healthy. Well, let's talk about that for a few minutes then, because you are representing products, well, you, you're thinking about all of agriculture, but you're both involved in, in uh, beef or dairy, which are considered, quote, red meat. And and there's so many conversations right now that you say, well, if you're going to consider meat at all, don't eat red meat. That's coming back. I stopped hearing that for a while. But that distinction between what's red and what's white and whether why the white might be better than the red, I don't think is clearly established by the science. And and yet it's just accepted at face value um, that we need to go more more white, which is why pork producers 20, 30 years ago tried to campaign the other white meat because that they thought red meat wasn't selling. And um, then it just kind of faded because we don't talk about that much anymore. But uh, but what do you think about that, about that, uh, the, the way people have jumped on red meat in particular rather than just meat? 
Yeah, we were actually just talking about this in an interview earlier about how behind some of the sciences on this and how behind some of the research is, you know, when you really start breaking down the research behind, you know, that like red meat causes cancer kind of claim out there, that blanket statement, uh, it there's not a lot of substance to those studies and there's a lot of flaws to them. Um, one of the things that I always think about when we're, we're talking about this is a lot of times we compare a vegetarian or vegan diet to the standard American diet, which as we know has all sorts of different things in it beyond just red meat, right? Um, it, I think we need to get more studies out there that are focused more on like a whole foods diet with red meat being included and comparing that to then the other options out there. Um, I think some of the challenges with that is obviously like studies are, you know, expensive. They take a ton of time. And um, one of the issues is if red meat is the sponsor of those studies, that brings a whole nother, you know, conversation into the mix of whether wow. that that can be like validated or, you know, holds stands firm. That's the problem well, with whole natural products is that they don't have a sponsor. They don't have a big corporation that's making money off of manufacturing, adding ingredients and packaging and so forth. And so there's, uh, it ends up needing to be the industry to sponsor some of this research because otherwise it would never get done. Yeah. And Tara, just to kind of add to what Tara said, she, you know, mentioned that like there are more studies coming out and stuff to show support or, you know, obviously um, disprove you know, that red meat is bad. But I think going back to what I said earlier, it's just so hard to like kind of unring that bell. I mean, they have come out and redacted that like, you know, the whole cholesterol, high saturated fat debate. And they've said that there's, you know, no science to support that. Um, but still people will, you know, look at a pile of butter or look at a piece of that red meat and say, oh, well, I'm going to, you know, get a heart attack from that. And it's like, well, there's tons of science out there now to say that like we were wrong. That's not true. But I just feel like they get these easy narratives in our minds and we just can't for whatever reason, like correct them or move on to like the new science that's coming out. You know, if you go back and look at when beef's popularity really started losing grounds to chicken, it was oh, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And, and, and it used to be beef was like double the chicken consumption. And then chicken became, you know, took off and was way in front of beef. What happened, though, back then was there was actually a, a nationwide meat boycott because of the price of meat. And there was a, a nationwide trucker strike. And in that meat boycott, the magazines that were writing about food at that time would started noticing that if they put articles in about chicken recipes, they got a lot more attention. And they started going to researchers and others and say, give us more stories about how chicken's good for you. Because at the time, uh, when you serve chicken to company, it gave the impression that you were poor. You were, you know, on your way to destitution. And that, and so Americans were looking for an excuse to have chicken. And so anybody that had a theory or a story about, about how chicken might be better for you than, than beef was getting imprinted. So if you look at like all of the magazines back there, they were all doing readership surveys to see what would pay attention. And, and that, that worked as people wanted to see them. And then the consumption was taking off and the stories about, about red meat and white meat. So I can get on a tangent on that. So you I guys no, stop me. No, that's fascinating. I had no idea. And it makes me think of, you know, how history plays such a large role. Like we kind of think that like the laws or what we're, you know, up against right now is just going to affect, you know, our generation or the you know, the next 10 years or whatever, but it's like, we have these things that we're putting into place or these marketing things that we're doing, um, you know, they, or a single person, it made, it kind of made me think of um, Ansel Keys and his role in like the food pyramid. It's like, there's singular things that can have a very vast effect um, on the future of food um, that it's just kind of scary, right? That one thing, one, you know, uh, one boycott of the meat and then the printing of the chicken could completely, you know, flop the, the percentage of consumption or, you know, Ansel Key studies could write a whole entire food system. And Tara and I talked about this a little bit on our podcast when the White House was having their um, food convention with the um, food compass. It's like they hadn't done that for 50 years. And if we don't do it for another 50 years, it's like what takes place within those White House walls right now, it's going to have a big in implication, you know, yeah. on the future yeah. of food. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and soon after, some of the studies started coming up with cholesterol studies about the same time. And and some people looking ahead back when those right after the meat boycotts and all the push to chicken, the people that were doing research on seeing correlations between high cholesterol levels and meat consumption started getting published a lot more, which is interesting. Now, what, 30, 40 years later, eggs are back on the good list and they're no longer uh, you have to give up eating (laughs) eggs when you're keeping an eye on your cholesterol. You might take a statin and you're doing some other things that are sensible and exercising. But you don't have the prohibitions that we were hearing for 30, 40 years on don't eat eggs, stop eating eggs. And now now it's kind of, whoops, we overstated that. Eggs are okay. Yeah. yeah, you say that, though. And in some ways, we're still like, it's it's crazy how long it takes for new studies to come out to be like in the mainstream, like advice. I actually, I have high blood pressure and I was at the doctor recently and he was like, we're keeping an eye on your cholesterol. And he was like, I think you should give up eggs. And I was like, what year are we in right now that you are telling me this? But like, obviously, you know, whatever information he had had research he had had was kind of outdated. And I mean, I didn't want to be the one to tell, you know, the, the doctor with the MD, but I was like, this is kind of outdated information. And so kind of going back to the, like this entire conversation, the conversation about the white house, you know, one study, one like popular marketing, whatever it is, can just have decades and decades of, of repercussions. Well, I don't want to oh. leave. I, I, I don't want to, to to leave Natalie out of this. Oh no, Tara, it's for you. I'm going to come back for a dairy thing too because I happened to talk to my doctor, and she said my blood pressure was a little high, and uh, and she was going through the list of um, how many dairy products are you eating, and I <laughs> I thought, well, give him a break. I'm doing Greek yogurt, and I have uh, whole milk, and you know, and I don't eat a lot of cheese because I think I overate cheese some before. But if if we were going to have an embarrassing issue with our doctors, we would probably say, just exactly how many nutrition courses did you have to take to become a doctor? So exactly. That's gonna say. I feel like we're opening up the can of worms. A lot of people have. I mean, I you know went through pharmacy school. 12 years ago now, and um, have never obviously been through medical school or, you know, a a doctorate medical school school. Um, But I do know, you know, a a majority of emphasis of education is put on, you know, anatomy, physiology, like the the science, the drugs. Um, And I know there's a lot of people out there who are like, where is, you know, the food, the health, um, you know, where's that education in when we're putting, you know, all of these health, you know, medical professionals through school, like, where's that, that other side of the coin? You know, I'm glad you're saying that. I've been really interested in these stories, uh, different programs that are expanding health span. And it's like the biggest growth area because there's a lot of people getting older, which, you know, present company excluded, but I think there's a lot of people getting older and they're worried, worried about not necessarily longer lifespan, but they want to be healthy most of their life until they die. Yeah, And so there are huge, huge clinics and big money in Silicon Valley that are jumping in. And if you decide to go online and check out Twitter and and check out the podcast, you'll find tons of it. And a lot of scientists, but billions of dollars that are going into health span. That when you talk to these scientists, it gets back to the fact that they didn't have some of the experiences you're talking to uh, talking about, Natalie, is that they're kind of ignoring having a balanced meal of fruits and vegetables. And they are looking at different additives that you can do and, you know, working on on your cells and getting the age of the cells but when you hear what they're actually doing some of them are saying things like i've given up fruit oh what you know or now they're getting more extreme of those that are either the carnivore diet or the vegan diet and i think wait a minute what happened to in between and and so you you go online and you know i'm it's one of those others i'm smacking my head when i'm reading and hearing these things i'm thinking can anybody say, fine, you should eat some meat. Yes, you should eat some fruits and vegetables. Don't give up on fruit. And um, But instead, it's like like in everything else, they're trying to go to the separate sides and be, are you in this tribe or that tribe? Do you find yourselves in the middle of those debates or hearing the same things? 
Absolutely. I think so. And especially because we are so pro meat that I would say I end up with a lot, you know, the algorithm on social media gives you kind of what you want to see. Um, And so I feel like having conversations around animal ag and animal protein, I end up with a lot of people um, very focused on, you know, animal protein based diet. Um, and it's really interesting. It's I, actually, I find it fascinating to see kind of the different extremes of the diets, the different um, viewpoints and arguments, like what, what studies is each one of them quoting, where are they turning to for their research? And I'm kind of, I think I'm in the camp with you that I'm, I'm kind of like everything in moderation, like a little bit of everything is probably what's best for us. Um, but it is, um, it is crazy. I mean, we live in a world of extremes. We live in a world of polarizing ideas. Um, and so I don't know why it's as surprising to us as it is that if we had vegans, we were ultimately going to have carnivores as well. Um, but it is, it's kind of fascinating to watch. I listened to a guy the other day that I, I really like, and he's he's good, and he's gone plant based, and he's quite proud of going plant based, and he's. Uh, uh, but one thing that was interesting. He also part of his plan is he goes to the gym and lifts weights once a week, and he always eats meat the day he goes to the gym. Oh I thought, well, that's gosh. a podcast in itself. Why don't we talk yeah. about that a little bit? <laughs> Yeah, I think the flexitarian movement um, is becoming. I don't know, bigger, I guess I'm hearing that word more and people describe it more. I actually, um, Tara and I were talking, we found this article that we were discussing and, um, in it, at the end of it, they said that this, you know, media company who obviously has no, you know, business in creating a course like this, but did created a five day, um, eat less meat course. And in that course, they would, you know, walk you through a different couple different things, why it's important, how to do it you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, at the end of the first, I, so I signed up for it because I was very interested in, you know, seeing what comes out of this five-day course, what the emails were like from this, again, just a media company who had done this. Um, and at the end of day one email, they did a call to action and it was either be a weekend vegetarian or vegan. So, you know, during the week or sorry, a week, a weekday. So during the week you abide, but those rules and on the weekend, you know, it's a free for all you get to eat whatever you want. Um, or they call it be a 6 PM one. So, you know, for breakfast and lunch, you abide by the vegan vegetarian rules and then dinner, you get to do whatever. And I feel like it's just that, um, you know, my personal belief, it's just those lifestyles trying to get more people, you know, to talk about it or, you know, test it out or try it. And, and really it goes against their whole, you know, morals, if you really care, you know, if you really have a reason to be vegan or vegetarian, it, sh- you know, it shouldn't be just the weekday or the weekend or, you know, 6am versus 6pm. So it's kind of funny to see what they're, you know, these marketing tactics that are coming out um, to kind of push some of those different, you know, lifestyles. Well, then that brings up the other areas is just not eating at all um, with fasting. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not a question of you, are you going to be just vegan or are you going to be only um, a carnivore, but, uh, but fasting. And I do the 16-8 intermittent, I guess it's called, but it's just the window. It's just a restricted eating. It works for me. I like it and seem to to be useful. I eat anything I want in between that, but I kind of try to not eat late and don't eat much for breakfast, which some people will scold me for, I'm afraid. Uh, I think that goes to one of the main points Natalie and I actually like advocate for is there's not a one diet that fits everyone. There's not a one food choice that fits everyone. There is literally a thousand different things that you could do that could or could not work for you and may work for, you know, your next door neighbor and don't work for you. And so I think that we are just big advocates of like finding what works for you, what fits your nutrition, your lifestyle, your budget, all the things that make up you and your your life and um, making that work for you. And I think that's probably like our biggest stand we stand on. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. We're covering a a lot of ground here. One other thing I just want to mention, we go back to a little earlier, we were speaking of how there could be some countries where they have a better carbon footprint than others. Like I was picking on Bangladesh and I'm going to do something favorable for Bangladesh soon just because of that uh, versus say dairy that might come from New Mexico, uh, for example. But that gets back to questions of country of origin labeling. Is it fair for consumers to want to know where their foods come from, which you don't know for sure with meat products anymore? What do you think of that? You want to take that one first, Natalie? (laughs) Oh, no, you go ahead. (laughs) I, 
I so I have a hard time with labels. I feel like labels in general can be very confusing. I can I think they can offer a lot of information. I think they can be very uh, confusing. I think we're in an era when you go into the grocery store, there is literally you are bombarded with labels on everything from gluten free milk to non GMO salt, right? Like just everything has a label. And so I get hesitant to like slap another label on something. Um, I also think labels oftentimes lead to a lot of fear of people like thinking that if it doesn't have that label, it means it's bad. Or if it has this label, it means it's bad. Um, And so while I do believe people should know where their food comes from, where their meat originates from, so that you know the practices and the standards that, you know, that, that cattle are held to, I just have reservations about having more labels. So I know I know that's not like a straightforward answer, but I guess I just I understand the wanting to know where your food comes from. I just have concerns about like I guess the follow through, the practicality, what it looks like. Well, you were hedging your bets there a little bit, but you did say you do understand knowing where your food comes from. Absolutely. And I think the thing is right now, if you go buy a package of those blueberries, not the person you spoke to in Puerto Rico, but you buy a package of those blueberries and it'll say product of Peru or Mexico or Chile right now Mm -hmm. because of the seasonality. But if you buy a package of ground beef, depending on who your retailer is and what their pledge is, it may have been blended from more than one country even. And it could be using fat from this country and lean cuts from someone else and their production practices and their their sanitation requirements in the factories themselves and the processing plants might be different. And it seems like that should be a no-brainer, but it's um, it's a controversy anyway. Yeah, I think I think about a gallon of milk. Um, you know, there's a number on every gallon of milk, and you can go. I think it's called "Where's My Milk From." I think is like literally the website, and you can go and enter that code and find out exactly where your milk came from. And um, you know, I think that that's amazing. Like that traceability is really fascinating to be able to see um, and see the practicality of it. And so, I, I do believe that we should kind of we should be able to know where our food comes from. This is a marathon session. This is what happens when I get to talk to podcasters that talk about agriculture all the time. And I'm going on and on and on, but I'm I'm so enjoying having this conversation uh, with you two. And what haven't we covered? This, we've covered a lot of ground so far. We have covered so many things. Uh, I, I feel like we've covered all the things I kind of had on my list. Uh, Natalie, how about you? Yeah, no, I've been, um, I told you before we aired that I listen to your podcast all the time. So I'm just honored to be here and um, hopefully everyone else has enjoyed this conversation too. But there's there's nothing that I'm dying to get to um, that we haven't covered yet. Well, um, well, let's see if I have one more thing I'm dying to get to. <laughs> I think that we've touched on some areas that I think also are keys to what's good for agriculture going forward. And that is... Um, bringing up some subjects that tend to be off the table. Perhaps statehood for Puerto Rico was reaching. <laughs> <laughs> that might have gone a little too far, although I'm, I'm, I'm willing to, to defend that. But next- some of the areas like our production systems and that, you know, not every farm's the same, not every rancher's the same, not every country's the same. Uh, I agree, too, with you, Tara, that you can load too much stuff on labels uh but some of the basic things people ought to be able to get just a simple straight straight answer and uh, and i think of us in agriculture that are facilitating these conversations if we can keep leaning into bringing up the tough points and and not just get locked into defending like all farmers all ranchers all systems all things that seem to be favoring business versus government or anything like that um that seems like the right space to be in. And uh, then I'm grateful for you two being on Farm to Table Talk, listening to Farm to Table Talk. Let's do this again sometime. And, I, and especially, I'd like you to talk back to some of uh, the guests I have. So if you want to get back to me and say, wait a minute, I think you missed a point here. You had to get somebody to tell, cover this angle. I'd always welcome your advice. And And before we wrap up, uh, one more time, uh, Tara and Natalie, tell people where they can find you. So the best place to find us right now is our podcast, Discover Ag. If you are on social, you can also find our podcast on Instagram at discoverag underscore. And then you can find our personal pages. I'm at Tara Vanderdusen. 
And I'm Natalie Kavorik. Um, and one thing I'll add that Tara didn't is we also share our podcast to YouTube. So if um, I'm, I'm guessing everyone who's tuning in right now, obviously, you know, knows their way around the podcasting platform. But if, you know, you, you for some reason don't want to or you enjoy watching, you know, video um, with the, the verbal discussion, um, we do upload our conversations to YouTube, which is um, the Discover Ag podcast. So you two are going to have to coach me a little bit more because I haven't done that. I mean, I've been using these podcasts. I've been using Zoom now since the, before the pandemic, and uh, and I like it, and I feel like I get a better audio product recording through Zoom. But I'm not posting them as a YouTube channel. And actually, I'll end up with this podcast. So I've got the video with, with both of you right now that I could require me to do a little bit more work. So I think that's still the problem that um, it's uh, laziness on my part, probably. <laughs> no, there's only so much time in the day. <laughs> I know, I know. And we're we're busy battling floods and so forth, and which hopefully will pass soon. Yeah, thinking uh, of all of you guys in California, for sure. I think it's pretty weird having such floods in the middle of a drought. But yes, I always think that we're getting close to the truth whenever we discover paradox. And I think we've we uh. certainly have one here. <laughs> hey, listen, thanks for being on Farm to Table Talk. I've enjoyed it and I uh, hope people will tune in. I know they will to catch what you two are doing. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 